G'day guys, uh, my name is Jez, if we haven't met, so good to be together, what an awesome night already. I was just sitting next to Brett and Natalie, Reese's parents, and uh, just to think, I was there when, when Brett became a Christian, uh, a whole bunch of years ago, and to see the change in his life, your family's life, praise God. Um, we really do follow a God who changes lives who changes eternity. It's just so good. Hey, uh, I'm going to pray and then let's dive in this word together. Uh, well, Lord God, we rejoice and praise you that that's who you are, the God who comes to us and the God who brings such deep transformation in our lives. And so now as we come to your word, uh, your word, the unseen God, we ask that you might give us eyes to see you and ourselves and our lives for what they really are and so please Lord give us wisdom that we might live lives that are truly good and we ask this in Jesus name, Amen. Well Noah's Ark is one of the most famous stories in human history Um, but the problem is in more recent times people know the, the kids' version, the child version, the cartoon version that might be, maybe has a cover like this, um, Noah out for a sale with his favourite pets. <laughs> and, or, or we have the Hollywood comedy version, right? Um, the Evan Almighty, I know that's a, a few years old now, but we have a laugh at it. The thing is, people don't actually know the original version, the Bible version, which is shocking and sobering. It's one of unparalleled death and destruction. But more, against such a dark backdrop, it offers very real hope. And hope that connects to our lives, and particularly the big questions that we have in life, namely, where is our life heading? Where's it going? Where does it end? And if I knew that, how am I to live now as my life heads there? They're the big things, the big questions that this part of the Bible deals with. Now, like previous chapters of Genesis, it also raises other questions for us, right? Um, Like, when was the flood? What was the extent of the flood? Was it a global flood? Was it a local flood? What kind of evidence might we expect to see in the geological record? How, many, how did he fit so many animals on the ark? What did he do with all their poo? <laughs> like We bring lots of questions to this account, some of them better than others, but what I want to do tonight is, is put some of those questions to the side and actually focus in on the dominant, clear purpose of this part of the Bible, because it actually intends to do something in us, more than just tickle our ears as a good yarn. Now, being quite a large text, it's over three chapters, and I'm going to assume that it's a fairly familiar story for you. Uh, We're going to move through it quite quickly, through the plot, and then consider three big lessons that fall out of it. But firstly, the context. This is not just a nice children's story. It actually has a historical context, and that is life outside of the Garden of Eden. God has created the world. He's created it good for humanity to know Him, to enjoy Him. But chapter 3, we looked at last week, tragically, humanity rebel and fall from grace and are banished 
out of the garden. And so what we have from chapter 4 onwards is what that life looks like, what the world looks like, a life in sin. Sin which we see separates and spoils and now spreads. Uh, Chapter 4, we have the first murder where Cain murders his brother Abel. And so begins the dominant theme of chapter 5. Have a look at verse 5 with me. Chapter 5, verse 5, Adam died. Verse 8, his son Seth died. Verse 11, his son Enosh died. And on and on the chapter goes because life outside of the garden is now one marked by death. And wickedness which is particularly the context for the Noah story in chapter 6. Have a look at chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Just notice how all-encompassing the wickedness is. Every intent, only evil, all the time. And so God regrets creating mankind. Which, take care when you think about this language applied to God, it's not the same as us regretting. Like, I'm currently regretting getting a puppy about a year ago. Every time I walk out into the yard, it feels like I step in poo, right? Even though the kids promised that they were going to pick it up all the time, why don't they do that? It's it's weeing everywhere, I just can't get the thing toilet trained, I'm regretting the dog. Now, our our regret, though, is that we, we don't know the future, we don't control the future. But God's regret here refers to a change in His stance towards sinful humanity. Whereas before he has borne with their rebellion patiently, his patience is coming to an end and his judgment will fall. So, chapter 7, verse 4. Seven days from now, he says to Noah, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. This judgment is so serious, it's actually presented as decreation. Chapters 1 and 2 talk about the creation. Do you remember where, in the beginning, there was this watery chaos, and it's out of watery chaos that God brings the ordered world of vegetation and animals and people. The earth was formed out of water, and by water, the rain would actually feed the earth, sustain life on the earth, but now... God is going to use water to undo it. It's going back to a watery chaos. Chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. Verse 17. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. Now we tend to have short memories, don't we? Because this year it feels like it's hardly rained. Um, My grass is going brown. But do you remember last year, La Nina, 
where it just felt like it would never stop raining. Um, you wouldn't forget it if your home got flooded last year, as I know some people in churches did. You definitely wouldn't forget it if you lived in Lismore, right? Where things that we thought were so solid, like a house, would just float away like it was a leaf in a creek as it rained and it rained and it poured and it flooded. Can you imagine living at the time of Noah? And maybe like us, the weather being one of the kind of first points of conversation where you, know, you, you catch up with the mate, you go, man, it's, it's been wet, hey? Yeah, I reckon. Super wet. Uh, a week later, it hasn't stopped raining. I know. A month later, oh man, do you think we're ever going to see the sun again? but they never would. Verse 22. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out people and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. This is far from a cute children's story. This is a confronting account of death and destruction. Captured more accurately, I think, by the 19th century French artist Gustave Doré. Now, if you're an art nerd, you might know this, but he did a series of engravings. I've got one of them up here on the screen here. Where I think he more accurately captures what's going on in the biblical text, where you see people clamouring. So the highest point, clamouring onto vegetation with the beasts of the earth as the floods rise, as people drown, and you see the ark off in the shadowy background. His artwork actually owns something of the judgment that this account has. But here's the thing, there's more than just judgment here, isn't there? And as I want to show to you, actually, the biggest point is not judgment. There is a bigger one. And that is that God shows mercy to Noah. Chapter 6, verse 7. The Lord has regretted making humanity. Verse 8. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9. Noah was a righteous man blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. We see that amongst the wickedness, God has actually preserved a remnant. One man who hasn't thrown off God, who continues in relationship with him and to walk his way. That's what the Old Testament language of being righteous and blameless means. It's not meaning sinless perfection, but to be in relationship with God, to live in step with his will. And so to this man, Noah, verse 18, the Lord says, I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Now this is the first time that God explicitly makes a covenant with humanity in the Bible. A covenant is a contract, a promise with terms that are to be kept. We make small covenants all the time, if you like. 
when I click the buy now button on a website, the agreement is that they would take the set amount of money from my account and they agree to send the item. We make all these kind of covenants all the time. There's bigger covenants or contracts like taking out a mortgage with a bank. They agree to give you this big chunk of money and you agree to pay it back with ever-increasing interest. Ouch. (laughs) And then, of course, there's the biggest human covenant, that of marriage, where two people are binding themselves to each other in exclusive union until death. But these are all examples of bilateral covenants. Two parties agreeing to their terms. Notice here that God makes a unilateral covenant, an unconditional promise. And this is huge because this is not humanity and God coming to an agreement. This is God taking the initiative to one man, Noah, to show him mercy and to those who are connected to him. And this becomes hugely important throughout the Bible. His family, eight of them in total, and the representatives of each kind of animal. God makes a covenant with Noah and those who are connected to him. In the midst of horrifying apocalyptic judgment, God remembered Noah. And this is the biggest point of this part of the Bible. One of the ways that we can actually see that is the case is by noticing something that the author has used to underline the main point. When we want to say, hey, here's our main point, we might literally underline it or highlight it or put it in all caps. But the Hebrews, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, use something called a chiasm which was a literary technique, a little bit like a literary sandwich, where you had things either side, and as you go into the middle, you get to the best bit, um, the meat or the, or the um, whatever, the non-meat thing, if you, if you don't eat meat. The best bit in the middle. What's that called? Vegetarian. <laughs> oh, I'm so in touch. Um, let me show you. See, as you look at the account, I've got it up on the screen here, you look at the intro and the outro and it's about Noah and his sons. Uh, You move to the second part of the account and it's dealing with the wickedness of all, but it has a parallel, the second last part of the account, the covenant with all. You move to the third part, God's going to destroy the earth by flood with a parallel of God never again to destroy the earth by flood. Next one. You see, it goes on and on as it works its way into the middle where X marks the spot. At the heart of this chiasm, this sandwich, but God remembered Noah. But God remembered Noah. What does that mean? When my kids were younger, I remember saying to one of them, they they had an artwork uh, that I was seeing uh, often and her, her name, she'd written a name on it and I walked up to her and said, sweetheart, I, I love walking by that artwork because each time that I do, I remember you. And she looked at me with this horrified look saying, Daddy, do you forget me? <laughs> <laughs> no, sweetheart. And it was a good opportunity for us to talk about what it meant to 
for, for God to remember us. That is, to, to bring to the front of mind and act accordingly. God hasn't forgotten Noah whilst he's got busy doing something else, but rather using human analogical language, if you were here Monday night as we pushed into that stuff, uh, the Bible is talking about God bringing to the front of his mind, so to speak, the promise that he'd made to Noah and acting accordingly. And as he does this, he's about bringing about a recreation. We've had decreation, we now have a recreation. See, Noah spends with those with him one year on the ark. You can chase that time frame up from chapter 7, verse 11, chapter 8, verse 13. One year on the ark. And on the other side of it, he comes off. Have a look at chapter 9, verse 7. The Lord says to him, As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Actually comes up a few times in this account. And as careful readers of the text, we go, I've heard that. I've heard that only a few chapters ago in the beginning as God creates and he gives this mandate to Adam and Eve. God is recreating. This is a new beginning for humanity, stated to Noah and his family. Now, how do you know that, like Adam and Eve, and it went so bad so quickly and God destroyed the earth, how do you know that that's just not going to happen again quickly? Well, God puts a sign of the covenant that he has made in the sky. Look at verse 13. I've set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Now, the Bible's not intending us to think that the rainbow didn't exist in creation prior to this point. As though when light refracted through moisture, it didn't do that colourful thing. That's not what is being said. But rather, at this point, the rainbow is given significance so that it would remind God of his word that he might keep it, which of course is to actually remind us of his covenant And he is a God who keeps his word. There you go. There's a a quick move through the plot of this story. Let's move to three big lessons that fall out from it. Number one, God runs the world. God runs the world. The Christian reading of this account is not as a myth or a metaphor. Let me say that again. The Christian reading of this account is not as a myth or a metaphor, but as something that really happened in time, in space, in history. I mean, the account is concerned to give times and places itself. But the reason I say the Christian reading of this account, which might seem arrogant, is that this is the way that the New Testament reads the account. And if you want to work out what the Christian account is, then you see what the New Testament makes of it. Jesus understood Noah to be a real person rescued from a real flood. Now, it is true, it is the case that there are a number of other accounts from from the ancient Near East that have flood stories. 
Some of them have details quite similar to Noah, actually. Some of them quite different. And this can actually concern us as we go, whoa, there's, there's all these other accounts. How do I know that the Bible is any different? An example is the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's a document from Mesopotamia. It's dated back to the 18th century BC, so the same kind of time as the writing of Genesis. And it has a flood story. Many of the details are quite similar, but there's, there's some big differences too. Like, for example, the reason given for the flood, for why the gods actually send the rain, it's because people are too noisy. Like, oh, just would you shut up down there? They get sick and tired of all the noise and so they send this flood to wipe out noisy humanity. You've got like sensory processing issues. Now, we, we kind of chuckle at that. People read these as myths. Oh yeah, nice stories of ancient cultures. Noah and the ark, exactly the same is the conclusion. Just an ancient mythology. But here's the thing, the presence of flood stories in multiple ancient accounts actually argues the other way, that there really was a massive flood. There really was a cataclysmic event so significant that multiple ancient cultures wrote about it and have been preserved. Now the details, and many of them are different, but, but something massive happened. That Jesus said it happened, of course, is enough for us. And we push and prod and test to see whether the New Testament is telling the truth about Jesus. But this means that it is God who runs this world. That this God was powerful and present back in this time as he is today and so isn't a God to play games with, to take lightly. In our culture, which is so materialistic, we are constantly at threat of being dull and deadened to spiritual realities. Only looking to the, the here and the now. There is a God, an unseen God, who runs and rules this world. And at some moments, He has, he has run this world in such an extraordinary way that we read of accounts like the flood. There's a big first lesson for us, there is an unseen God who runs the world, which is the basis for the next two big lessons. Who is this God? Who is this God that wipes out all of humanity bar eight, all of the creatures except a few? What kind of God is this? And the Bible's answer is a holy God. A holy God who cannot and will not have wickedness come into his presence. A holy God who is blindingly pure and righteous. God is love, yes, as God is light. And therefore, God's judgment on wickedness is not the opposite to his love, but actually the application of it. The opposite of love is indifference. We just don't care about things or people that we don't love. A news article popped up on my feed this week out of Dubbo. It reads, 
the public gallery of a Dubbo courtroom broke into applause as the man who brutally and callously murdered this schoolgirl and attacked another teenager was jailed for a maximum of 32 years. Judgment is the application of love. That we do love, that we hold as valuable and have dignity. And so when wronged, we long for justice, for judgment. We long for justice in the world. We long for justice in the Middle East. We long for justice in corporate Australia. We long for justice in homes on the central coast, which has the highest rate of domestic violence per capita in the country. Do we long for justice from God for our own lives? Surely the answer is yes. Do you want God to act justly with you? Surely the answer is yes. Well, now the huge question is, is chapter 6 verse 5 true of me, true of us? That every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Really? Really? Is that who we are, who you are? We might go, well, maybe that was humanity before the flood. Like, it just, it got messed up, it got out of control, God brought judgment. But on the other side of the flood, we're reformed. Uh, We're basically good at heart. Now, here's the thing I want to put to you that, that just experience and observation won't let you do that, but the text won't let us do that. Look at chapter 8, verse 21. This is on the other side of the flood where all people have been wiped out bar Noah and his family. Chapter 8 verse 21, the Lord says, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. There you have one of the most sobering diagnoses on the human condition. This was the message of last week, you remember the fall. Noah, righteous and blameless, a remnant preserved, was not a sinless man from whom now good people came. Have a look at chapter 9, verse 20. Again, this is after Noah has left the ark, after the judgment, the new beginning in the recreation. Chapter 9, verse 20, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. This is the beginning of the new humanity, drunk and naked. Bringing great shame, actually, into his family. His brothers are now, there's a wedge driven between them. And there's turmoil and there's strife from the very first generation of the new creation. The human heart is not changed. Fallen in Adam remains fallen through Noah. There is no aspect of you that is not stained by sin. Of me, of her. There is no dimension of you in your life that has not been stained by sin. Physically, mentally, 
emotionally and relationally and spiritually, every dimension has been stained by sin. There's not a domain in your life, there's not a place that you can go that hasn't been wrecked by sin. Your workplace, it'll help you understand why the workplace is the way that it is. Your home, everything has been marred by sin. There's a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, He was a Russian who lived through the 20th century in the Soviet Union. There's a photo of him. He witnessed the most horrific uh, acts against humanity there under Lenin and Stalin. And so he observed so much suffering. Look at what he says. A man who has witnessed dictators. He says, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? There's a very deep insight into the human condition, reflecting what the Bible is saying. It's not like there's just a few bad eggs out there and they deserve hell. This is bound up in every single one of us. We cannot escape it. Now, God does mercifully restrain evil, restrain wickedness, so that though we are corrupted by sin at every point, we are not as bad as we could be. God restrains that evil. And actually, we're even capable of great good for moments. Great glory. We we kind of give hints as to who we were intended to be. Do you remember last week, though? We're just good pirates on a pirate ship. Only evil all the time. Really? Well, yes, (laughs) And here's why, when you repent, when you come back into a relationship with God, you actually work out that you don't just need to repent of the bad things that you've done, you need to repent of the reasons that you ever did anything good. Because it wasn't to honour God, my Maker, to bring Him honour, it was for some other reason. It's a good thing, yes, it was a good act, yes, it was maybe even loving. But out of relationship with our God... The scriptures say that everything that does not come from faith is sin. And so, the flood is like a loud drum that sounds the holiness of God. And His just work to judge evil in His world. And you know, our reaction to God bringing such judgment, it actually reveals where our sympathies lie. Are they with God or are they with people? It was a bunch of years ago now, I watched one of the worst movies I reckon ever made. It was called The Happening. Um, It had tough guy Mark Wahlberg on it, so I went in for it, but it it was really bad. I don't recommend spending 90 minutes of your life watching it, but there you go. Um, It traces this plot of this uh, apocalyptic threat to humanity. People are just dropping dead everywhere. 
And it turns out because there are toxins that have been released into the air, just people dropping dead, dropping dead. But here's the thing, the toxins have been released by the trees and the plants who are fighting back on behalf of nature against people who have used and abused and trashed nature for so many years they've had enough and so the trees fight back. Now, it's a bit of a silly storyline, right? But when you hear of that plot, I reckon most of us go, oh yeah, fair enough. Fair enough that nature would push back, fight back and give humanity a little taste of their treatment. But what about God? What about the way that we've used and abused and trashed and sidelined God? When God brings judgment, we go, how dare he? And yet we, go, we, we look at the evil in the world, we go, oh, this world's messed up. Where's God? What's he doing about the wickedness in the world? And God does something. He brings judgment on wickedness. We go, how dare he? This text really does reveal where our sympathies lie. Is it with a holy God or is it with sinful humanity? Now, I do want to say, it's important to say that as we bring heavy hearts to the idea that God brings eternal judgment on people, as we, as we bring heavy hearts to that, we want to be careful not to think that our hearts beat bigger for people than God's does. We want to be so careful to think that we're the loving, compassionate ones. God's just a, a capricious, cold judge in the sky. No, no, no. Look at chapter 6, verse 6. As he heads towards this judgment, the Lord's heart was deeply troubled. The Lord's heart was deeply troubled. He didn't just fly off the handle in a divine fit of rage. God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 33 verse 11. God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. 2 Peter 3. I mean, think about the patience of God even in Noah's day, ahead of this judgment. His neighbours walk up to Noah one weekend and they go, Hey Noah, what are you doing? He goes, I'm building a boat. And they go, you're building a boat? We live in the middle of the desert. What are you building a boat for, you idiot? God told me that he's bringing a flood to wipe out the world. <laughs> yeah, right. Next weekend. Hey, Noah, how's the boat going, mate? With his sons. A month later. A year later. In fact, we have good reason to think that a hundred years later, Noah and his sons are still building this boat. Hey, Noah, you idiot! Where's the flood? Where's the rain? Where's this judgment? And then it started to rain and it started to pour and it never stopped. In 2 Peter, Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. We might imagine that Noah is pleading with people to repent, to turn back to God, that he might show mercy, as he does through Jonah to Nineveh, do you remember? And yet, 
this patient God is a holy God who will not let evil go unjudged forever. And so this flood for us becomes a very sober warning for us, for you, for me tonight, of something that lays in our future. When all of the wickedness, and this world is so messed up, it hasn't escaped God. He sees it. He sees every little bit of it. His heart is troubled by it, but he's patient. But one day his patience will run out and he will bring judgment on it. It's the way the New Testament interprets the flood. Jesus, chased it up later, Matthew 24, uses it to warn of the very real coming judgment of hell. And yes, people will then hear that message and scoff and laugh. The idea that an unseen God in an unseen moment will bring an unseen judgment. And so the question for you, for us tonight is, who will you trust? Who will you trust about the future in light of the past? Therefore, who will you trust about how you will live, how you will act in the present? Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 holds Noah up like this. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. Noah is held up as a model of faith. Trusting God. Taking God at his word. Here's the third big lesson that then follows for us. The greatest lesson for us is the need to find safety. That our sin is real, that God is holy, that judgment is coming. But there is safety. There is mercy. Properly read, the account of Noah points us to Jesus. The eternal Son of God who came for us. God's initiative. Not a bargain between us and God who came and lived the perfect life and went to the cross to die and take God's judgment upon himself. His wrath for the wickedness of the world poured out on Jesus and it destroyed him. But there in the cross we see both God's justice and his mercy coming together so that Jesus might actually die as a substitute for the wicked, for wretches like me who can look at a saviour and go... Would you forgive me? Would you take my wrath for me? And so the biggest question that this passage asks each one of us is, do you know this safety? Jesus is the ark provided from God. Have you asked God to forgive all your wickedness as you put your trust in a saviour? Jesus is the only place of safety. And more, he's the only place of recreation, of true, deep restoration, where hard, sinful hearts are actually softened now to beat for our God, to know him as Father. Oh, sin remains and we bumble and we stumble and we wish that it wasn't there, but we have new desires. We don't want to do those things and and it grieves us that we 
would sin against our God, whereas previously, who cared? If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Now, we await the full and final recreation, which comes at the return of Jesus when the heavens and the earth will be remade, when, when our bodies will be reunited with our souls and when every sphere of who we are will be healed, no longer marred by sin. We wait for that day. Friends, when, when we really understand the point of this part of the Bible of the flood things ought to become really clear for us. Lots of things, but let me just give us two and finish. One, who we are as God's church and what church is to be on about if we really get the message here, what we are to be ultimately on about. See, church is the ark. Church is the lifeboat. Safety from God's wrath. Not literally you walk through the doors into a building and now you're safe. Of course not. It's trusting in Jesus alone that makes us safe. But, but what happens to those who do that, the redeemed? We gather as his church. And who are the ones who hold the only words of life, of safety? We do. In the word here, we are the preachers of righteousness to a world that is lost that faces judgment. The promise of mercy is in the gospel alone. And so church, don't, uh, don't, don't miss just how significant it is to belong to this group, to this family, to this community. In fact, um, uh, church buildings in other places through the years have actually been constructed in some places where they would, they would make wooden beams coming up and maybe even curved with wooden panelling on the ceiling so that as you came into church, as you heard the word of the gospel, you might have this tangible sense of being in the ark, of being safe among God's people. Um, We just have white acoustic panels hanging from gyprock in this building. But we've made this space as big as we could make it so that there would be as much room possible for your mates, for your family, for your neighbours to come and hear the only message that will save. And so surely with clarity we need to go as a church of all the things we could do, that we want to do, that are good to do, the most important thing that we will do is hold out the gospel of a saviour, the only news that saves and we'll give ourselves to that. Things get really clear about what church is. Um, It also helps you make sense of the things that we wish were different. Um, You know, we're a bigger group of people. You you could find smaller churches where you could know everyone intimately, you know everyone's name. We're we're past that, right? Now, it'd be nice to be able to do that, but when you recognise that judgement is coming and we're the ones that have life then we're going to put up with the discomfort of a growing family, right? Of the mess of it. It's like we are in the ark and the animals are pooing. Things are a bit messy, but we're safe. And the Lord is going to get us safely to the other side. Lastly, what is it about your life 
that doesn't make sense to people around you who don't believe, who scoff at the thought of judgment? What is it, so to speak, that is your ark that you're building each week, each month, and your mates, your family go, you're an idiot, really? I mean, how good to hear from Holly and from Reese, just two ordinary people who have been captured by this message and who are doing things that is just stupid if this wasn't true. I mean, leaving a good job, physio, engineer, why would you do that? What is it about your life? What's your ark that you cop flat for from people who don't believe in this? And if you can't think of anything, then you do have to wonder, do you really believe this? Has it really changed your life? But if you have, and of course we wish there was more that, that, that demonstrated in our lives that we really believe this and we long to grow in that. But if there are things and if you do find it hard in a world that mocks you, take heart. Noah's faith was vindicated, as will the faith of every single person who puts their trust in the word of a good God, a merciful God who has come for us. I want to give us a moment right now to just pause and reflect uh, before or as the band comes up uh, to lead us in song. You might want to use this time to pray for people that you long to come to safety in the gospel. You might want to use this time to repent of things in your life that just aren't consistent with what we've heard, whatever. Use this time before God, then the band will lead us in song.